You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Hope everybody enjoyed last week's episode. I know uh, Jay's a very interesting guy, and um, I'm hoping to get him back again to do an episode more about newts and salamanders, which is really more what he's into. But hope everybody enjoyed it. Went over well. And again, if you guys want to support the show, really the best thing that you can do for me is to go on Apple Podcasts and leave a nice review. That's going to help me get out to a wider audience, which is really what I want to do with the podcast, is to be able to reach as many people as possible. So if you have a couple of minutes, if you haven't already done so, nice review on Apple Podcasts always helps. And that's about it. So let's get into the show. Now, one of the more frequently top, uh, frequently discussed topics when it comes to captive amphibians is feeders. And Years ago, hobbyists were limited to crickets, mealworms, for mice for larger species, and wild-caught bugs, depending on where you are and how comfortable you felt getting bugs from the wild. However, as the hobby developed, so did a greater concern for providing our animals with healthy and varied diets. And nowadays, we still have the old hobby staples, but there's been a surge of new feeder options available that include fruit flies, bean beetles, doobie roaches, black soldier flies... um, butterworms, etc. And, you know, these are not necessarily brand new, but when I was younger, we really only had crickets and mealworms. And now we have a much greater variety of food available so that you can vary prey items and really just provide something that's somewhat closer to a natural diet. Now, one feeder that's always been sort of mysterious, at least for me, is a silkworm. Silkworms have been domesticated for thousands of years and they're considered one of the healthier prey items, but Despite being domesticated for so long, they're only rarely offered as feeders here in the U.S. And I never really understood why, other than the fact that I I heard that they were difficult to breed in captivity, they were difficult to maintain. Well, all that's out the window because I have Susan Markward of Beast Mode Silkworms, and she's going to enlighten us about all things silkworm. So, Susan, welcome. Thanks for doing the show. Um, Why don't we start at the beginning? Why don't you tell us how you got involved with animals and ultimately what led you to work with silkworms? I had, um, about three and a half years ago, I had acquired a chameleon and that was the first lizard I had prior to that. I had snakes that just ate mice. I got a chameleon and I heard all this, this great stuff about silkworms as feeders and I was unable, it was in the winter and I was unable to locate any company that had available silkworms to buy for a a feeder. So I just thought to myself, I wondered why it was, they were so scarce and I bought, I'm like, well, why don't I just raise them myself? I bought some eggs tried to hatch them, was unsuccessful several times until the the very last time I was like, I'm only going to do this one more time. I bought eggs and then finally I was successful in hatching them and raising them. And it was all just to feed my one chameleon. Um, that was why how I started the, from there, I had a lot of friends in the in the reptile world contact me and say, you raise silkworms, do you have any for sale? And I kept getting bombarded. So that's what segued into 
where I'm at right now with beast mode silks. It's kind of like the goose that laid the golden egg. I mean, I'm sure that once everyone figured out that you had them and that you were producing, they must have been really, really enthusiastic about getting them from you. Yes, it was it was crazy. So I started just selling them to friends, and then they told friends, and they told friends. So I then I formed uh, Beast Mode, and I ran it myself for a while, um, the whole production. But it got too big, so then I split off into divisions, and now I have four divisions across the United States. That's right. Yeah, on your social media pages and and on the website, I know it's almost like a network of people that are suppliers for you, so to speak. Yeah. I always was, you know, like I said earlier, I was always sort of intrigued by how mysterious silkworms were as a feeder. I, I only saw them for sale maybe once, and then any website that I had looked at, I mean, bear in mind, I didn't look too hard, but they were never available. They were always out of stock. They were always back ordered, et cetera. I mean, can you go kind of back a ways and tell us about the history of silkworms as feeders? Like, what, when did they start getting into the hobby and what led to, you know, the, I guess, the eureka moment that they could be used as a feeder? The um, silkworms have, outside of using them to for silk, they've always been in the hobby. They've just been so scarce because a lot of people didn't understand how to raise and hatch, hatch, raise, breed, and the whole cycle of the silkworm. And a lot of people were afraid of it because there's a lot of misinformation out in the internet on exactly how to raise silkworms. And the misinformation led to the failure of being successful. Like I tried like five times before I was successful and my whole system. Now I got it down pat, but getting back to what you were saying, they've always been um, in the hobby, but because they were not readily available, nobody really knew about them or didn't have access to them. Um, A lot of, of the bigger companies, only produce raised silkworms and sell them in the summer because their main diet is mulberry leaves. Um, And there is a mulberry leaf chow, like a, a recipe that you can prepare and feed, but it's expensive to do. I can see how that might be kind of difficult. Like, I mean, I'm always biased towards fruit fly media because I keep primarily dart frogs, but I know having a readily accessible source of food for the feeders can be tricky. I can only imagine what it must be like with mulberry leaves since that's the only thing that they eat, right? Yeah, so that's why you can buy the chow, but it is quite expensive. But that's solely what I feed my silkworms on and my partners is the, um, the silkworm chow. Uh, it's just like a um, a paste, eventual paste made up of of ground mulberry leaves, so that we can feed our silkworms year round. Yeah, I I had gotten some from you, and I I tested it out, and it's, I mean, if you can make fruit fly media, you can make this. It's pretty much almost the same in terms of how it's made. I mean, like what what I got from you was, 
I just, I boiled some water, I added it, microwaved for a couple of minutes, and then it kind of, it, it almost kind of became like, like a dry, like, um, almost like a, like a dough kind of consistency. Yes. I have to ask, where did the name come from and, and how did it start out? <laughs> when I started, uh, hatching and raising silkworms, I, I became friends with Mariana Boland. She's one of my business partners. I adore her. <laughs> I became friends with her. She has a, a semi-famous chameleon that had recovered. She had cared for it that had a severe MBD. And I adore, and her chameleon's name is Sweet Pea. And she has a following on, on Instagram. And this little chameleon is just amazing. So Mariana always adopted the, the tagline beast mode when she tagged Sweepy. And I had asked her one day, I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm developing a company. And I'd really love to use the name beast mode because it represented Sweepy. And Sweepy is our, our icon on our um on our company for, for whatever you call it the the our icon for our company and uh she's like of course and then when when beast mode got too big when i got too big to do the production myself and i split off mariana was the first person i asked to to see if she wanted to sell for me so i got it from sweet pea that's a great story. I like I like that sweet pea. <laughs> I like yeah. that. How long did it take you to establish the the network of people that you have? I mean, you have a couple of different divisions. Like, was that something that kind of happened off the like right off the bat, or did you develop relationships with people as the as Beast Mode grew? Oh, I I developed the relationship as as Beast Mode grew. First, I was doing it primarily by myself with a couple of people helping me, like marketing and stuff like that, and getting the word out that. I actually had silkworms. And then as I got bigger, I, it was I was it was too much for me to supply the demand. Um so I was into it about about 2 years before I split off cuz I split off like last year. Did you ever get like to the point where you were like sold out? I mean, did it happen to you as well as it happens to like some of the other suppliers out there? <laughs> I'm always, I'm constantly so, I constantly sell out of um, of my production, and that's why I like having the the four divisions because if we're out, somebody else, a division, another division, is more readily apt to have them available. So, and um, uh, yeah, I sell out every. I hatch egg. I buy eggs and hatch them every week and i sell out every week <laughs> as far as the eggs go i know that that's kind of where you start with but can you can you tell us about the life cycle of silkworm because i i, I gotten some from you and i noticed that like the little ones are like they're they're tiny they're almost like eggs with legs and then as they mature they get much bigger but what's what's the whole life cycle like the um the life cycle there's um there when the eggs first hatch that's the first instar, and they go through several instars before they get big 
to cocoon. Their largest size is probably about two to three inches before they start to cocoon. And uh, when they're getting ready to cocoon, they'll turn like a, a yellowish tinge. And then they'll go off and they'll start weaving, producing their web uh, that, um, that they wrap around themselves to cocoon. Once they cocoon, I'm sorry, it takes about a month, a month and a half before they're ready to cocoon. So they're, they're available as a larval feeder uh, up to about a month and a half. And then they cocoon. Once they cocoon, it's about two weeks until they emerge from the cocoon. When they emerge, they don't have, the moths do not have mouths, so they don't eat or drink. And their only goal is to find a mate, mate, lay eggs, and then they die. Um, they're, once they emerge, about two weeks after they cocoon, they live probably like a week. But they find a mate almost immediately and start mating. They'll lay eggs after a few days of mating, probably like five days, they'll lay eggs. Um, the eggs then start developing the, the the embryo in the egg, and then it's they pro they hatch. If the conditions are right, they hatch probably like three weeks after they're laid. Have you ever successfully? bred the adults or you just get you just start with eggs oh i've i've bred the adults it's yeah that's that's one of the things that and mariana specializes in that she she really she really likes that i find it too tedious <laughs> and monotonous for me but but um yeah we do breed the the moths and there's a whole system uh after after they breed and lay eggs we diapause them, which is in the winter, you, you kind of mimic the winter for the eggs. So after two weeks, if they don't hatch on their own, we put them in the refrigerator and keep them in the refrigerator for six weeks, pull them out, bring them to room temperature, and that will prompt them to hatch within about two weeks after. That's wild. You know, the closest thing that I got from them, and again, I'm, I'm by no means, you know, I don't really know much about hornworms either, but it was the life cycle was kind of similar to the hornworm cycle. Is that like fair to say? Kind of like the same egg to um, pupa and then, well, they don't really spin a cocoon, but then they metamorphose out as adults and the adults don't live very long. Yes, they're, they're similar. I have not raised hornworms, but um, I know the the hornworms grow a lot faster. The larva size grows a lot faster and, and larger than a silkworm, but it is similar to that cycle. Can you feed the adults as well as the larvae? Oh yes, yeah. The um, the the adults um, 
the reptiles love the moths, and then the larger reptiles love the larger larvae just before they cocoon. Yeah, I had my eyes on, I mean, the, the smaller ones that I got were, like, if you feed dart frogs, and, you know, like Heidi, I, they're a little bit bigger than that. So they're, like, right on the high end of what a dart frog, I should say reasonably, like, reasonably sized dart frog, like like a tank or a, you know, or a uh, phylobites, like phylobites like terribilis. They just knocked these things out. And they were, they were a little bit, over, like, maybe like an eighth of an inch. And once they kind of got the hang of you know, how to maneuver because they, I, well, stupid me, I didn't realize that they actually do. They, they produce a little bit of silk even before they metamorphose. And the funny thing I noticed was like my, I had a couple of dart frogs that I wanted to get a little bit more weight on and they knocked these things out. And then the funny thing was they actually got full and very few of my dart frogs are ever like full where they just, they just won't eat at all. And it was pretty cool actually watching them just like knock these things down one after another, one after another. So they definitely went over well with, with, with my frogs, but as far as the larger ones, I'm waiting for them to kind of get a little bit bigger because my white's tree frog, I want to dry him out with it. And you know, there's a couple other species, but it's nice because they start out so small and then you can grow them out to a, a, a larger size. So it's, it's pretty versatile depending on, you know, whether you have a varied collection with a lot of species or if you just have like one or two that are similar. Yeah. And um, to add to that, I sell uh, the majority of our silkworms we sell to like lizard and chameleon owners, um, but the nutrition for of the silkworm lends itself to so well to um, as a staple feeder to reptiles and amphibians and uh, and fish and everything they're they're amazing with the nutrition for them and even like the smaller like the the baby animals they um they they tend to to really thrive on on a silkworm diet yeah my little guys really enjoyed him and it was it's it's funny because the like I said, the first couple of times a day, they kind of get used to it. And then once they got it, they were like, all right, I want more. And I ended up, <laughs> well, the other thing that's nice about them is they don't like disappear in the terrarium. I, I like to cup feed from time to time where I'll make like, I'll take like a little, um, like a little condiment cup lid and I flip it over and I just took my tweezers and I put maybe four or five or six of them on there, put it into vivarium. And then, you know, my, my dart frogs, like my, my tanks especially really liked them. And they would just kind of hang out around that cup and they would grab them. It's not like the fruit flies where they would just sort of like disappear into the terrarium. I didn't have to worry about these things like, you know, showing up upstairs on like my, you know, the bunch <laughs> of the bananas that my wife bought last weekend you know, when we went shopping. But yeah, it's, it's nice. They don't, they don't disappear and they stay in the, they stay in the container too, which is pretty cool. Yeah. They do not travel very far. Their, their sole driving force is the smell of that mulberry leaf yeah, when I made up the the chow mix, I was like, all right, let me just see what they do. And I just kind of put like a blob of it in there and then they were on it like almost immediately. It was actually really entertaining to watch because they just went straight uh, straight for that. They eat so much. And as they get bigger, they eat so much more. <laughs> yeah, I saw them. They knocked out 
a lot pretty quick. As as far as the diet goes, and this was the other thing that always intrigued me was 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 mulberries. Now, obviously, silkworms have been domesticated for a long time. I think it was like five thousand years ago they started yeah. the domestication process in, in China. What about like the the diet? I mean, is it something that the average person could concoct at home, or is it like really like proprietary where it's it's very very specific and kind of like you know kept among silkworm keepers so you know and not so much uh, made public if you could say that well marianne and i had developed a silkworm chow recipe over two years we've been working on it and we we just got it down pat to where we can make our own but it's it's very difficult to get the the um same quality of ingredients even with the same vendors and it's not like you can just take mulberry leaves there's i there's something floating on the internet that you could take mulberry leaves and dry them out and mash them up and there's a recipe, but it doesn't work. It molds so fast. And um, so we had, we had worked very hard to get a recipe that we can make, but the majority of people that raise silkworms just buy the chow from, uh, we use Mulberry Farms. Uh, Brian is fabulous at Mulberry Farms. He, he, uh, we get the chow from him and our silkworm eggs when we don't breed and hatch our own. But, um, uh, but he has the silkworm chow all the time that you can buy. So anybody can hatch and raise silkworms over the winter. I, I've, uh, I, don't recommend feeding mulberry leaves because I've never had any luck. I have mulberry trees in my backyard and I never feed them because I tend to get a lot of die off. And I'm not too sure if that's with pollution or whatever. I, I wash the leaves thoroughly and I still don't have a lot of success. Um, the mulberry tree itself the one that the silkworms actually, there's several species of mulberry trees, but the one, it's like a white mulberry tree from Thailand. Or, and uh, that's the only ones that the silkworms actually really thrive on. That was going to be my next question, actually, was... Uh, obviously, when you have a species that exists solely off of one type of plant, I can imagine it's got to be really, really difficult. But I, I was gonna, actually I was going to ask you if there's different species of mulberry trees. So, I mean, let's just assume that the average person has a mulberry tree growing in their backyard. It really wouldn't be wise to just like try and feed it the silkworms because you wouldn't have the same success as you would with commercially made chow, right? Correct. Correct. And. um and they eat so much. Like you, I 
when I did start out, I did feed mulberry leaves to the the oh, a little bit older, larger silkworms. And I have eight mulberry trees in my backyard, and that would last two weeks. So I would have to drive around the neighborhood <laughs> to find more mulberry trees to to cull the leaves, and it was very, very time consuming, very labor intensive. I swore it off like, and I've tried many times and I'm like, this is just too much work. Yeah, that's one of those moments where you're out doing something and you start thinking to yourself, how did I get so far off the rails on this? <laughs> exactly. I know I've, I've done my share of, of crazy things looking for <laughs> some, some component to husbandry that I was looking for or whatnot, but yeah. A few minutes ago, you, you mentioned about stuff going on around the internet. And as we all know, the internet is just such a wonderful place for information. <laughs> oh, yeah. All correct information, too. I, I've heard some rumors about silkworms over the years. And these are things that, you know, w once a bad piece of information is on the internet, it's generally there for for good. It's, it's there in, in um, you know, until the end of time. What are some of the myths about silkworms? I mean, I, I've heard that they're fragile. I've heard that they're susceptible to disease. I've also heard that they're sterilized and that they can't reproduce. That's why it's so hard for people to get them to reproduce. I mean, what, what are some of those? I mean, tell me some of the like, rumors that you've heard or misinformation that you might want to like, clear up for us. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot. Silkworms are... As long as the environment is clean and they're easy, they're fairly easy I, to rehatch, rehatch the eggs and raise them up to cocoon. I've walked so many people through the way that I do it and they've become very successful. And they started then hatching and raising them for to feed their their animals. And once they once I walked through them, I don't remember all of the myths, but I know that everything on the internet that I read about hatching and raising them was incorrect. So I have my own way of doing it and I, I'll walk anybody through it. That's interested. All they have to do is message me. And I've, I had videos and stuff, but Facebook took my group down because <laughs> they thought I was doing animal sales, but, um, but I'll walk anybody through it. And, um, uh, no, it's not hard once you have the right equipment and the right routine on raising them, hatching and raising them yourself, it's very easy to get them to cocoon and to, once they emerge, to mate, lay eggs and uh, diapause them so that they're, to force them into a, a suede of winter and then pull them out and have them hatch from the eggs and start the process over. It is, it is pretty easy. 
there are there are like five viruses that silkworm breeders or whatever run into and it's very hard to get rid of those viruses. The viruses that affect the silkworms, they can live on any surface for like up to seven years. So um, people with a silkworm business or where they do the process for, for they they are successful for like two years, then they get this virus. I don't know how the virus comes into play. It's a lot of times they say it's with um, it comes in with eggs that have the virus on them, the one type of virus, and uh, the eggs have the virus, and once they they hatch, they only live for like two weeks. Uh, I've run into people who, who've had the virus and it's, it's really tough to get rid of, but I walk them through on how to get rid of it and they've been successful in getting rid of the virus. That's wild. I mean, of all the times to talk about, if we talk about viruses, this year has to be the most, uh, the most appropriate. Yeah. But I know, I know what you mean. Like there's, um, with like the, I mean, for listeners outside of the U.S., I know you guys have access to things like locusts and different species of cricket. Well, we have pretty much two choices here in the U.S. We have the domestic cricket and we have the, well, we have a couple of choices, but the big ones are the domestic cricket and the banded cricket. Now, the domestic cricket gets viruses and you'll have like whole colonies just get like wiped out by this like crazy cricket virus. And it's, it, it's got to be really difficult. I mean, if you have a silkworm colony, well, not a colony, but like you have a silkworm operation going on, I mean, would you lose all of your silkworms if you had an outbreak of that one of these viruses? Oh yeah, and it would be impossible it's impossible to to overcome that. Basically, um it's it's devastating to a to a lot of um people who who are in the business once they get the virus. It's devastating to them. Pretty much what I've done because I I've been lucky in that I had not had the virus, um, but I have several rooms that I switch off. Like once I start having decline in my silkworm population, I'll just get rid of everything that I have and then just buy new supplies and switch rooms completely <clears throat> so that um so that uh, stays ahead of the virus and that's why i think i've been so successful in in hatching and raising them without contracting the virus is uh just because um and the the the, the supplies that i have are low cost so it's not like um a huge investment that i'm losing but um but it's it's mainly for the silkworm health how, how much space would you need to set up an operation where you're going to raise a fair amount of silkworms i mean is this something that you could do 
on a small scale or do you need like a decent sized room to be able to dedicate just to silkworm production? Oh, you could do it on a small scale. It's They don't take up a lot of room. <laughs> I mean, if you were going to like, is there like, I hate to use this term, but like, is there like a starter kit that you could recommend to someone like in terms of like materials that they might need or just something to start off production on their own? Oh yeah. I have, um, I have, um, in that, that Facebook group that was <laughs> deleted, I had, uh, supplying and raising supplies like, and with links on, on what I use. And, uh, it's, 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 I probably say, um, I recommend, I recommend about six bins and I use these, um, these bus totes that bus boys use. They're, they're fairly inexpensive that I get through this, uh, restaurant online store. I use like six, six totes and forceps and just a lot of F10 cleaner. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know. F10's invaluable. Yes. (laughs) Do you keep the area? I mean, what temperature do you maintain them at? Because I've heard different things. I've heard somewhere in the neighborhood of like 80 degrees. I mean, am I incorrect or? No, you're correct. I have, I have one room. Uh, Each of the rooms that I use, whichever room I use for silk, for the silkworm production, I have a, I use an oil filled radiant heater in that room solely just to keep the temperature elevated for the silkworms. And I keep my silkworm room at 82 degrees. Now people can, people can use, um, I started out using incubators, just like the hovabator incubator. And that works great. But then once I started per, you know, hatching 100,000 eggs a week, I, uh, I just dedicated the room to the same temperature as the incubator would be. That's a lot of eggs. You say 100,000? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what's the success rate like with, with eggs? Like, let's just say, say you got a hundred thousand eggs. How many of those eggs are going to hatch and develop into, into caterpillars? Okay. Up to the, uh, about a half inch, I probably lose 20, 25% by the time the silkworm's a half inch. Um, by the time too large, just before they cocoon, um, it's probably more like 60%. Okay. So you got some, you know, you're going to have some die off as part of the natural kind of progression of things, right? Yes. Yes. Silly question, but. Can you feed the eggs? I mean, is there anything that will will take silkworm eggs? Dart frogs. <laughs> okay. They okay. love them. That's interesting because I was thinking, like, I, I mean, the ones I had were really small, and I, I, well, my bearded dragon is big. He's pro- well, one of the bigger 
animals in my collection because everything I keep is kind of small. But I threw him in one of the larger ones, and he looked at me, looked at the worm, looked at me, and looked at the worm, and then he just kind of like picked it off. So I was just curious. I'm like, I wonder if he would like, you know, if he would eat eggs. So yeah, I haven't um, the the um, I've sold eggs to um, somebody who has dart frogs that their dart frogs love the eggs. That's wild, especially since, they, I mean, the eggs don't really move, right? They just kind of. Yeah, they just sit there. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. I wonder, yeah, I wonder if like, um, oh, I'm just thinking, I don't know. I, for some reason, I just started thinking about familios being obligates, but there's no way they're going to eat silkworm eggs as, as tadpoles. So I, sorry, everyone, that was just me going off, going off the rails, <laughs> fantasizing about something. Now, one of the other pieces of information I've heard is that you can temporarily feed them carrots. What, what's the relationship that they have with carrots? Like of all the, I mean, I can't think of anything more unlike a mulberry tree than, than a carrot. Like how did that come about? Um, I, I had heard that <clears throat> Mariana had actually done a, actually performed a test where she will, she fed, she peeled carrots based off of this information and fed them to silkworms. Silkworms, they did eat the carrot. They engorged on the carrots and they lived for about two weeks just eating carrot. So, and I, I, I had done some more research because of this, I was like so intrigued. Like, why do they only say mulberry leaves and and stuff like that? What I had I found out was there's an enzyme in the mulberry leaf that the silkworms are like drawn to, and that in, stimulates their appetite. That's why the silkworm larvae newly hatched. They like just you'll and like you said when you fed the silkworms they just beeline to the the mulberry chow mulberry leaf because of the enzyme in there that they're drawn to that stimulate their appetite they will eat other vegetables and they will live they won't thrive on them so, like, let's say somebody ran out of mulberry chow or mulberry leaves. They could feed their silkworms for, and the silkworms would live for about two weeks or so until they got chow in. So, it's just like an intermittent thing. We recommend gut loading the silkworms on carrot before you feed them to your animals. Okay, that was going to be my my next question because I, I've heard that silkworms are a great prey item because they're, I mean, no prey items are really like 100% nutritionally complete, but they basically have, you know, all the nutrients that you would want as close to what you would want as, in terms of being a perfect uh, a perfect feeder. But I, I never really understood, like, if you're, if they only eat one food, if they only eat mulberry leaves, like, how would you gut load them? I mean, obviously, you just you just answered my question that you can gut load them with carrots, but... Um, 
do you do you like do you dust them with supplements? I mean, have you had? I mean, I don't know how many animals you you keep personally, but I mean, like if you were to feed them as part of your regimen, like what would you do? Would you gut load them for a couple of days and then supplement, or vice versa? I um, I gut load them on carrots, and I do dust them only because my reptiles I have eleven, and they all but well except for the snakes, <laughs> all all of the the lizards eat the silkworms, and. I know that they eat those silkworms and that they love them. That's why I will will dust them with the uh, the calcium or the vitamins that because I know that the that the reptiles eat them. So I know that they they you know will ingest the the proper vitamins that they need for their health. Um, I, silkworms have an enzyme in their digestive tract that, that lends itself to their nutrition, nutritional value to reptiles and amphibians or to whatever eats them. It's that enzyme and it's just, and it's silkworms are the only ones that have it. And that, that, um, that, um, what do we want to say that the reptiles that eat them or animals that eat the silkworms actually fare a lot better than eating other feeders. I know that the feeder of choice with some species, like, I mean, I'm not a big chameleon person, but I've heard from a lot of people who are really big into the chameleon world that silkworms are like the preferred feeder. Yes. And I sell to a lot of breeders and um, even a lot of rescue organizations that, that rehab and rehabilitate and care for sick animals. And a lot of them say when they feed the sick animals silkworms that they actually improve faster. And that's not like a scientific study or anything. And I would like to see that. But um, they said that in their experience, their animals do better with silkworms as as a staple diet. They do seem to put on mass. I mean, I, I mean, again, it's not scientific, but I've been feeding Hydei and Melanogaster fruit flies pretty much, pretty much exclusively to the majority of my dart frog collection. And like I said, the silkworms, I mean, they pounded these things down and they actually got full. They looked like they just had like Thanksgiving dinner and they'd had enough. And they were like, because <laughs> I went to offer some more. And they're like, nah, bro. Nah, no, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm full. <laughs> I was like, okay. So they, they do. Now, another, this doesn't sound like an odd question, but do certain species have a preference for them? I mean, is that why they're also really popular with chameleons? Because chameleons just really like eating them? Uh, yeah, yes. I, I've come across like uh, chameleon, like chameleons. And they kind of that, the um, the that family, the that species, 
um, the chameleon species, bearded dragons. I've had mixed reviews with leopard gecko owners. Some love them and some won't even touch them. Um, the and a, a lot of surprisingly silkworms to koi. Koi, the silkworms help the koi develop uh, or strengthen. I don't know what that um, that slime is on them. That's beneficial for fish, but it um, uh, silkworms actually the fish develop that slime that's necessary to live and that is a study somewhere that's wild i mean they have to be something beneficial to them i mean people eat them there's a um there's a market up the block from my house that's um there's a lot of um it's a it's a korean market so they import a lot of different uh, you know food products and whatnot from from asia from korea etc and they have cans of silkworms that people buy and eat so i mean i'm going to assume that they have enough nutritional value to warrant you know people eating them yes i, I mean this is a crazy question but have you ever like eaten one i did on accident <laughs> okay <laughs> I know. And the texture, the texture alone for for me, like really threw me off. Um, and I don't like, I don't really care for the smell of um, of the um, the the mulberry leaves. But yeah, it was uh, the texture is what threw me off. Yeah, I can't <laughs> imagine it being something everyone would be used to. I don't know. That's a, that's, yeah. a, that's a crazy question. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to ask that. But. It's okay. No, but I did actually accidentally eat a silkworm. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I mean, we kind of, we kind of talked about, you know, food preferences and whatnot. I mean, obviously some, it's, you know, it's interesting what you said about the, about like, uh, um, not crested geckos. It was leopard geckos. You said, right? Yes. Yeah. I fed some to my Oscars too, and they liked it. So I understand what you were saying earlier about the koi. I mean, I figured like my Oscar will eat pretty much anything, and he he loved them. I use them to fish. Yeah. When I go fishing, yeah. Yeah, that's that's another. Th I mean, I know that they're not the cheapest thing in the world. There's cheaper baits that right. you could use, but yeah, I guess you could, you could. I mean, I've seen people use waxworms as bait for trout and yeah. have a fair amount of success with it. Anything else about the life cycle that people might be concerned about? Like, would there be, um, like, maybe, maybe there's, like, an uneven growth rate? I mean, do you have, like, certain crops that will kind of grow faster than others? I mean, do they all kind of grow at the same rate? No, they do definitely grow at different rates. And it's um, a lot of, I notice the seasons in the winter, like, in the, in the, when it's very humid, I, I, I'm in Chicago. So in the, when in the rainy, like the fall, when it's really rainy, they grow slower than they do when it's um, like then, then in the summer. And, um, and uh, it's, I, I believe humidity plays in a, a big role in that. Um, my partner, Mariana, she lives, she's in Vegas. And, she, she gets like her silkworms grow so fast, and mine will sit there like 
very slow growing. And I'm like, come on, you know, um, but, uh, but yeah, I think uh, the weather has an important part in it, humidity levels, but they do grow. They do grow. They're just sometimes a year for me, they just grow a lot slower than others. I often wonder what it must be like to go to uh, like a, an operation where they just produce them for like exclusively for silk. I mean, that must be crazy to see like thousands and thousands of silkworms making silk and some, I don't know. I just picture some, some like weird, like super duper, like high security facility that like, you know what I mean? Like all the silkworms are kept like under strict quarantine and whatnot. I don't know. Maybe it's just me being. It's funny. There, um, there, uh, there are YouTube videos, um, out there on the whole, the whole, um, the whole sericulture is what it's called about raising silkworms for silk. And, uh, they mainly do it in like huts and outdoors and <laughs> it's crazy. That's wild. Yeah. Of course I'm, a, I, I overthink everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, before we wrap up, why don't you just tell everyone out there how they can get in touch with beast mode so that they can order some silkworms. <laughs> They can log on to www.beastmodesilks.com and they just choose their state and whatever division is closest to them, they will be um, they will be on their website to to order and um, get silkworms. If somebody's out, somebody else will have them, so they can just message me. I also have a Facebook page, Beast Mode Silks, on Facebook and Instagram. And, yeah, they can just reach out. And I can, if anybody's interested in learning how to hatch and raise for themselves, I, I'm more than willing, and I do it all the time and walk people through it. Good stuff, good stuff. All right. Well, listen, Susan, I want to thank you again for doing this show. I, I learned a lot. I'm always intrigued by feeders, and it's definitely been an interesting episode. So, again, everyone, I want to thank you all for listening. I think, uh, you know, we had a great show today. I learned a lot. I always like to learn. Hope you guys did, too. So, catch up with you guys again sometime soon.